You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with two CEOs, one with a prominent OCIO, or Outsourced Chief Investment Officer shop, who has authored many books over the years, and the other heading The Association for Education and Alternative Investments, as well as an accomplished ALS professional himself. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome to Alternative Thinking. Today is Wednesday, April 22nd, and we have Mo Lidsky with Prime Quadrant and Bill Kelly with the Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst, or Kaya Association. Let's start out with uh, self-introductions. We'll uh, start with you, Mo. Uh, sure. Uh, thank you, James. I really appreciate you in- inviting me on. Um, yeah, so my uh, role as the CEO of uh, Prime Quadrant, which is today Canada's largest research and consulting firm uh, for family offices and, and private investors, where we function and for the last, effectively for the last two decades function as a multifamily office and outsource CIO um, for uh, private investors. That's cool. Uh, so what, um, so what, how does that work as a multifamily or OCIO? Like what, what exactly, what kind of services do you bring to the, uh, the families that are with you? Yeah. So I think that, I guess the distinguishing feature is uh, when you think about the overwhelming majority of the investment world, most people would either fall into um, an asset gathering bucket or a transactional bucket. In other words, they're Mm -hmm. probably um, going to be busy with gathering assets and that's how they make money or transacting with assets and that's how they make money. And um, I guess we're neither of those two categories. We're retained Mm -hmm. uh, on the basis of time by families to help them source, uh, manage, um, uh, diligence, monitor, report, et cetera, uh, on investments across all asset classes, across all developed geographies. And they are looking to us to help them identify best in class opportunities across both liquid markets um, and illiquid markets. Um, Again, whether it's private equity or real assets or or credit or more traditional um, capital market strategies. And so that's how we function. Uh, Today we work with about 127, Mm -hmm. 28 families in Canada, and then a handful of families in Europe, U.S., South America, and Middle East. Wow, that's quite the breadth. Um, so you have liquid, illiquid. If you're not gathering assets and doing the transactions, how um, are they buying the structures through you, or do they you, you give them the advice and then they say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll place this transaction with whomever um, I can purchase it through? Yeah, so I think I think the whole uh, modus operandi and the the, the premise of starting. Uh, our firm and, and building this business was really to be a disruptive force in the financial service industry. The AUI model has been basically it and felt very strongly uh, there should be sort of like a McKinsey for the family office world or uh, or mm-hmm. BCG or whatever analogy you want to use. But effectively what the corporate world has in spades in uh, all sorts of management consultant companies and businesses and, and, uh, and um, sort of unbiased third-party opinions doesn't really exist in mass in the financial world um, where 
so much of it is, you know, here's what I have on my shelf and here's the asset classes, yeah. which are cool, and here's what I could do. So the, the whole premise for us getting into this business was really to provide families with the full range of advice, being completely agnostic as to what, wh whether they allocate, where they allocate and what quantum mm -hmm. in what respect. So, you know, it, it really is comes down to what are the needs of the families? What are the mandates? And how do we meet those mandates and how do we help them empower them to uh, to have the highest probability of meeting their specific uh, objectives? And then um, how much is liquid and how much is illiquid uh, within your family books? Sure. So, again, yeah. And I think that that varies. Like, again, everything that we're doing is a, is a tailored custom made suit. Um, mm -hmm. So you will we will have the full gamut of families with some with operating businesses, some without operating, those with operating businesses may have portfolios as small as 10 or $20 million or whatever else. Some will have portfolios with five or $10 billion. And so, um, you know, and the infrastructure that they have within their family office, if they have any infrastructure at all, um, is really going to drive uh, the asset allocation. So th their ability, their interest level, their diversification needs, you know, so you could have families that are 80 to 90% illiquid simply because they have absolutely no liquidity needs. It's going to be their grandchildren will never have an issue living off the risk-free rate. Right. And, uh, you know, that like that's one extreme at the other end is, is people for whom, you know, their capital is not their business and it has to provide for their lifestyles and so on. And so, uh, again, very different, um, where all of a sudden a much smaller segment, maybe 20 or 30% will be a liquid in, you know, like I said, uh, private equity or real real estate or, um, or infrastructure or farmland or credit or whatever. So um, I think it really is just depends on the family. And I think if I were to uh, do a mean across all the portfolios, I would say somewhere between 50 to 60 would be 50 to 60% would be liquid and the balance would be less liquid. Oh, that's great. Thanks. And uh, another with a very broad, uh, broad reach and broad knowledge, uh, Bill Kelly with Kaya. Let's, let's hear about uh, what you've been doing with the association. Uh, thanks James. And a delight to be with you today. And uh, first order of business when you're running an association like Kaya, when a member like James Buran asks you to do something, yes is usually a good answer. So um, I'm delighted to be part of this, and you're a big part of our leadership in Canada. So thank you for uh, all of that. Uh, so Kaya's so got an interesting mission. We're uh, just under 20 years old. And we started uh, in many ways uh, because of the CFA, not in spite of them, and people that don't really know us and they hear our story, they think we compete with the CFA and, and quite to the contrary, mm -hmm. uh, circa late 1990s when institutions for the most part were starting to adopt alternative sources of alpha and beta in the portfolio, there was no true educational body that could give greater insight around uh, the nuances of alternatives. How do they fit into a portfolio, the risk management components of it? operational investment due diligence. And, and out of that, Kaya was born. And uh, as we sit here almost 20 years later, uh, we have uh, just under 12,000 members in over 90 different countries and 6,000 people sitting for the exam. And while our members are people like you, James, individuals, what we're trying to do is deliver a, a better value proposition for the end investor. And if we do that right, 
hopefully members like yours will be very proud to be part of an association that's really trying to, in some cases, explain the unexplainable, because there's many <laughs> things alternatives can do, and, and I'm sure we're going to get to it in some of the points Mo brought up about liquid versus illiquid, and I think there's expectations in a market where the risk-free rate is virtually at zero. And, and if, if you think that alternatives are going to give you the compounded return into perpetuity of 8%, I wish it were that simple. So I think we've got a lot of interesting things uh, to talk about uh, today, and I'm uh, delighted to be part of it. Yeah, great. Thanks. And I know um, uh, Keith Black, who who works with you there, he put out a new paper on where alternatives are going. And of course, it's growing. Um, but what do you what do you think? Generally, investors. Um, I'm trying to think of who, because there's family offices, there's endowments, there's pension plans. Um, like most think maybe there's a fifty fifty or sixty forty split uh, in favor of uh, liquids. Uh, do you see? Many investors still in a lot of liquid markets, or are some really embracing the illiquid markets? Maybe like a Yale type of thing, or what's the trend you've seen there? Yeah, so so a couple of things uh, there, uh, and, and Yale is a perfect example. And I use David Swenson, who's the CIO there, mm -hmm. quite often as, as an example. And and many discussions we have, or many reports I read, you, you talk about what percentage should be in alts, and then of that percentage, how much should be liquid. Uh, versus illiquid, and then there's ways of maybe getting private equity exposure in a more liquid vehicle, which I don't know if I fully believe in or yeah. understand. But 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 if I think about that concept, James, of talking about a Swenson at Yale, I don't know Swenson, never met him, but I doubt he sits back with his investment team and says, should we be 30% or 35% or 50% in alts? He goes to the university mm -hmm. and he says to the university, how much are you expecting to take from me every year to meet your operational goals? Mm -hmm. And the answer is probably anywhere between three, five, seven percent. And they're going to take that out every single year, regardless of what the markets do. And that's an exceedingly important input for Swenson and his team, because then they could sit back and look at this buffet of risk premia in front of them and build the very best risk-adjusted portfolio that's going to stand the test of time. And we're in a very interesting time in this COVID-19 bubble where you, know, you talk about volatility. We've had it in spades for the most part mm -hmm. for the last uh, five or six weeks. Uh, but you've got to think long-term and think about portfolio, portfolio construction that will meet that bogey over the long-term. And there, I think the percentage allocation to alts becomes more of an output than it is an input. So I, I think it's very important to think about port portfolio construction Think about risk uh, return rewards and think about risk as, as units that you're deploying and think about risk as an asset. How are you going to really manage that as an asset as opposed to liability to be feared? Wow. Maybe um, from uh, we'll start with Mo and then we'll go over, go over to you, Bill. It's kind of a you'll get a bit of a two part. But Mo, like so you're looking at many different investments. You know, your, your investment team is, is doing diligence and such on liquid, illiquid, all this uh, some so-called like you'd probably call them novel investments but you know in a in a social distancing world how are they coping with that it's only been a month or so um but how are they continuing to be able to find uncover new investments and do the level of diligence required um and then and then for bill same question but also how do people do your test if they're if they you know they can't go into the testing centers but we'll start with uh, with mo yeah um so Great question. Um, I mean, I should qualify, you know, uh, since we've only been at this for a month or two, um, 
Yeah. It, it takes us a long time to actually find, you know, diamonds in the rough. And then it takes us a fairly long time to actually diligence them properly. I mean, occasionally something comes along really quick and it's opportunistic. But that, that, is, that, is that generally like a year or so or half a year? Or? I think, I mean, at the low end, between finding something and, and actually allocating will probably be two to three months at the low end. You know, so mm -hmm. um, at the high end, yeah, we may find something and it takes a year, two or three to actually get comfortable with it, to properly handicap the downside, get to know the people, the infrastructure, all the right. operational quantitative, qualitative due diligence. I do want to just actually piggyback, I mean, on something Bill said, because I, I think he uh, mm -hmm. spot on. I mean, the same way that, you know, that David Swenson, or at least the way that Bill trade David Swenson thinking about um, you know, Yale's endowment is really the way that we're also thinking about families. And it's really uh, about uh, matching assets to liabilities, you know, spe specific um, cash flow requirements, um, and, and making sure that those are always in play. Part of the reason that, that David Swenson is not terribly worried about liquidity in large uh, measures because there's a lot of asset classes in there that provide sufficient cash flow from various mm. different sources. And mm. um, what the, the the issue that this environment has created is that entire model falls apart when people aren't paying rent. That entire endowment model upon which many of us, ourselves included, you know, began uh, building our asset allocation models and you know, really didn't hold up. And I also think that it's it's somewhat unrealistic for people to assume that um, that any asset allocation model will hold up 100% of the time. Can't uh, carry around your umbrella thinking you're protecting yourself from getting wet. And then when a tsunami comes, getting all upset that you got wet. Like that's, that's really what, yeah. what happened here, right? At that moment in time, you just hunker down and you hope that the foundation of the edifice, which you built, could actually hold up. I think that there's been a real rethinking about what could we expect from our asset allocations, even assuming that we are really broadly diversified and uh, liquid, illiquid, geographically diversified, cash flow, diversified, like whatever it may be, I think this has really focused forced people to think about what is asset allocation? What does it mean? What does it really protect us against? And what is it meant to achieve? Uh, and what are expect reasonable expectations in this environment? Wow, thanks. And uh, Bill, what, what are you seeing from your lens? Yeah, I think we're in a very interesting period of the market here. And I think either Mo said, and maybe you did, James, that uh, uh, in periods of market uh, uh, dislocation, like we've had over these last uh, several weeks, as the old saying goes, the only thing that goes up in a down market is correlation. And that's generally true in the short term. But I think a lot of investors have to take a step back and, and maybe have a longer term horizon. And I think that separates a market participant from an investor. And I think the investors are always looking long term. And, and uh, there's a Ben Graham quote that uh, Howard Marks uses quite often, and I, I steal it with attribution quite often, which is in the short term, the market is a voting machine. Long term, it is a weighing machine. And I think that's how you've got to be thinking about accessing some of these less liquid asset classes in the private market. 
And we're in a period of time where price discovery has gone out the window. It's going to be very interesting to see how these marks come in mm -hmm. as of the end of March. I think it's slowed down some of the transaction flow because uh, the bid-ask spread on, on any portfolio company that uh, GP is thinking about getting into is very, very hard to ascertain. And many people might not know this, but it was the 50th anniversary of the endowment model. So when you think about finding alpha, you're looking at that in areas that are probably less liquid and very inefficient. And when the endowment model was one year old, five years old, 12 years old, there was still a lot of inefficiency. And if you were a smart LP or a smart GP, there was a lot of low hanging fruit. Fast forward to the 50th anniversary of the endowment model. And by comparison, I get out of college in 1982 there were 24 private equity general partners in the entire world, two dozen. They were probably licking their chops over so much opportunity. Now there's probably close to 10,000 and maybe two times as many funds yeah. in the marketplace. And, and the thought of finding that low hanging fruit is fallacy. It's there. You've got to work a lot harder to find it. And you have to look no further than the dispersion of performance results for the median manager in the private equity space versus the top quartile, it's separated by thousands of basis points. Private equity is not an asset class. It's an industry. And if you're thinking about median returns for private equity after fees, you're going to barely do better or maybe even worse than the public market proxy. So why are you doing it in the first place? So, so I think it does underscore both what Mo does and what Kaya does is that you've got to approach investing as a business. You've got to approach it as an investor. And even if some of your holdings are going to be liquid or short term, it's got to be part and parcel to a broader long-term game. And then uh, I guess shorter term, um... Like we've had, COVID came in just when the, the test schedule for the for spring was coming out. And uh, like I remember when I did it, of course, you go to the testing stations and the first one's multiple choice and the second one has multiple choice and short answer. And, um, you know, it's harrowing enough without having, you know, the, the crisis <laughs> occurring around you. But um, how, uh, what, what happened there for, for the association and then for, and for people taking the test and what, what kind of contingency plans do you guys have just in case Harvard might be right and this is 2022 before things get to some sort of other other kind of normal here? Yeah, we uh, the future's unknowable, as the saying goes. But it's interesting uh, that the, the COVID-19, uh, if you look at when it came up on earnings calls, it started in January in terms of management here in the U.S., and it certainly was well known by the World Health Organization, uh, certainly in parts of China. And if you look at this with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, I'll get to Kai in a moment, but as an investor, there was a lot that was foreseeable. Mm -hmm. And to think that the S&P 500 in the U.S. went below 3,300 for the very first time, I think in the last week in February, the disconnect there is enormous. But, but for Kaya, uh, we're a four-week exam window. We got through level one pretty well unscathed, and then the centers start closing down. And it's a two-part exam, and by the time the level two exam rolled around, North America shut down, and, and we're probably going to mm -hmm. be graduating a very small class of charter holders. But but most of them are committed professionals. They've graduated over to, uh, to the September exam. And it was a very busy time for us in terms of, of getting people moved. But I'm hoping by the time the September exam rolls around, it will kind of be business as usual, but if it's not, we're going to have to react accordingly. And I think there's going to be a lot of developments in test center uh, about remote uh, 
uh, yep. proctors, but with the yep. high stick exam, you got to be careful about that. But as an association, I'm, I'm very proud of our colleagues. And, and as a quick side story, I came back from Madrid, uh, not knowing it at the time, COVID-19 positive. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Um, how about you, Mo? Like, uh, how is uh, Prime Quadrant? Uh, have you guys shifted a fair bit? Or have you always been kind of, um, like, obviously, you're out there meeting clients and such, uh, on a, probably, probably a daily basis. But how is how has your uh, your efforts uh, changed, if, if anything, between this 100 and, uh, 127, 128 families that you work with? I mean, look, I think that uh, because we have extremely intimate relationships with all of our families, we, we were meeting with them on a monthly basis. Um, naturally, some of the families mm-hmm. that are, you know, across seas or across the country would be maybe a little less frequently than monthly um, in person. And... Um, and we, then we also have some, you know, some people in, in Calgary, like uh, staff in uh, Calgary or uh, Montreal. So um, I think, you know, for us, uh, I would say there was this punk, there was this period in time when during which we weren't sure how significant and serious this was going to get. And I, I think it was largely ignorance on my part. I mean, thank, thanks to. Uh, the insight of my COO and the entire uh, operations team kind of brought it all to my attention. So I got like, we, we really got to figure out a, a plan for it. And within 48 hours, I mean, they effectively mobilized our entire firm to, uh, first of all, dozens of people working in dozens of locations, which in itself is a, uh, is a significant achievement, but also setting up all of the infrastructure to support our families and um, effectively have seamless transition into this kind of new world or temporary new world, hopefully. But I guess you've had some time on your hands before too, because uh, you, uh, just like David Swenson, uh, you know, you put, put out your own book, which I, I thought was really good, uh, selling snake oil for um, someone who's traveling, because you could read a couple chapters, which were, I think, average six pages for uh, one of your vignettes. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have one in the lounge and on the plane and then in a hotel, boom, 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 one or two each. And uh, instead of getting like a three to five week narrative that you have to remember stuff. Um, but, uh, and I don't know if, I don't know if you, you saw it yet, Bill, but they, you know, it's, it's basically all the frauds and, and like, it's like having a forensic accountant uh, go through everything. And, and starting with, I think you had um, the match King, which is like one of my favorite stories. Um and uh, then going through uh, going through the decades and uh, just noting all the problems and, the, 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 and then having a bit of a moral of, you know, where operational due diligence did not uh, did, wasn't up to snuff. Um, what uh, what's the story behind that? Was it just like you were collecting all these newspaper articles and thought you put it together? Or how's um, how's the response been? <laughs> um, I don't really read the newspaper, but I, uh, I, I will say um, so a couple of things, you know. Uh, number one, first thing I will tell you, and this is like, um, Bill, in case you ever contemplate writing a book on fraud, um, here's my strong recommendation against it because nobody ever advises you of the second order effects of, um, you know, somebody Googling world's greatest frauds and your name coming up on Google. Um, Yikes. You know, it's like, uh, you, that's not where you want to see your mugshot. Uh, and um, especially if you're in the investment business. So, you know, uh, some of those things I didn't really consider. But in, in, in all seriousness, this book actually had written a few other books. And I, I have to start this one before all of them. 
um, what ended up happening was, again, because I said I came out of the operating business and notwithstanding I had a few degrees in finance, I really didn't understand the investment world, you know, uh, over a decade ago. And um, I had a great mentor who was a friend, who was a partner, um, and uh, he held my hand through it. But in the early days, you know, you're meeting with managers all day long. And um, I remember one particular instance, we had this fellow that came in uh, pitching some kind of uh, structured note product or whatever it was. And, um, you know, within my partner at the time, who, you know, was a, a really uh, gentlemanly, civilized South African fellow, um, you know, uh, dignified individual, never really raised his voice in public, all of a sudden slammed the table at one point in the middle of the meeting and said, you and I both know this is a scam. Now, please leave. And <laughs> I, I, <That's> awesome. <laughs> I was like, I was beside myself. I, I, uh, thought to myself, what the hell got into him? And we had these two analysts that were sort of in the room with us. And I, um, and I turned to him and I said like, okay, we, we got to talk about this. Like what just happened? And, you know, I mean, the, by the way, that the, the fellow that was there, I mean, recoiled, like he, it was an all out war. I mean, he just, you know, <laughs> just attack. Oh, yeah. That's when the bluster starts saying, oh, there's no way I could, oh, what are you talking about? Yeah, it got ugly. It got ugly. After the ugliness died down and the fellow left, I, I turned to him and I said, you know, uh, his name is Ian. I said, Ian, explain to me what, what just happened. And he went on trying to tell me this whole story of what happened to him 30 years prior with Lloyds of London. And it was a, um, a similar kind of structure. And anyway, I, I could not get a, uh, um, a concrete answer out of him. And, and I thought to myself, all right, well, you know, momentary lapse of sanity you know, he's getting on in years. So I kind of left it at that. And then a, a year or two later, I was, um, I was golfing. And this is, like I said, this is really at the very start. I was golfing at a charitable tournament and I'm talking to somebody and we're about to get out on the greens. And he says, no, I, I'm sorry. I got to take a call. We lost $5 million. Mm. I have to deal with it. And I said, as he's waiting for this conference call to start, I said, just out of curiosity, like what, what happened? So he starts telling me and I, put the two and two together. And it was ultimately the same gentleman that showed up in our office. And all of a sudden I, wow. it just scared the living daylights out of me because I was thinking to myself, well, I sat there through a, a whole presentation and there was not one thing that kind of jumped out at me. Not one thing that told me this is a scam or a fraud or, and maybe, maybe it was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, as somebody who's in the position of, advising and consulting to families across all asset classes. Um, I, I sort of thought that I should be, you know, like a family doctor, like, you, you know, you kind of have to see a, know a cold when you see one, you know, like it's, uh, um, and if you don't yeah. see sight or at least have some indication that something's off, that's a problem. So I basically immersed myself for about four or five years looking at every single, so I would say every innovative fraud that was ever committed in the, investment world and distilled the 400 or 450 cases that I went through into the 50 that I thought were most salient and, and, you know, to some extent salacious for, for consumption purposes. And, um, and that's really how the book emerged. And in the meantime, there was a couple other books, which, you know, uh, have all been um, uh, bestsellers because I have 10,000 copies in my basement to prove it. But um, it, <laughs> The, uh, but incidentally, neither my my uh, my mother nor my wife read any of them. So my real ambition with this one, aside from offering a, a hopefully a value, somewhat of a resource to, to the market, 
is to get my wife to read it. Um, and I, I say I, I, I've kind of failed on that score as well, but I'm glad you enjoyed it, James. <laughs> yeah, like I say, it's a, it's a perfect travel companion, but now maybe it's perfect for between webinars um, because you can kind of pick it up and give it a go and then get through something and then you're you're kind of on to the, the next one like a, a short like short story. So that's been great. Um, Bill, what have, what have you seen in... Um, Globia, has there, has there been a, a change in, in tone? Like we've read a few of these podcasts with people in, especially in the private equity side, uh, fund of funds and uh, and then funds that are investing in, you know, the portfolio companies. And they've just unanimously said, pencils down. Like we're not doing anything for a bit, but like how long, and then actually maybe to mow after that, like how long can this last before people say, oh shoot, I got this money. You got to put it to work somewhere. Uh, when do you think people either get back to normal or they just say, hey, it's not going to happen for a while. Let's just get through this and we'll figure out different ways of doing things. So interesting uh, question. And we've talked uh, a lot internally and to a lot of our colleagues, some of our members like you, you James, in that you know, I've done a lot of, of, uh, of webinars, podcasts, Zoom calls. And, and, and if you didn't have to, I never flipped the camera on. And I know we're not on camera mm-hmm. here, but but I treated things like Zoom and uh, and Teams as just basically a phone call in a different medium. But now, as we sit in this work from home environment, we've learned that we could pretty effectively communicate with a lot of people all over the world, and you don't have to jump on an airplane. And uh, so I, I think the world is going to be uh, forever changed to some degree. And and one of the things we, we've talked a lot about uh, ESG, we had done a report with uh, KPMG out of the Cayman Islands, and we've done several webinars. We have one coming up on Friday with 100 Women of Finance on the same subject. And, and one of the points I've brought out is that uh, as bad as COVID-19 has been, and it's been horrible for many people personally, mm-hmm. for many people professionally, it's the, the number of people filing for unemployment and the, the rates of unemployment are unprecedented levels. So there's no diminishing that crisis. But if you're going to try to find even the tiniest of silver linings in the middle of this is the fact that uh, oil has effectively, as of this week, over the the forward 30 days, has been effectively put out of business. And our consumption of oil is down over a million barrels a day. But I don't think anybody is looking at a climate dividend in the midst of all of this, where we've been able to sit back and and commerce has gone on and we haven't jumped on airplanes. We haven't gone to hotels and some of that's going to come back. But I think we need to take a step back and say, what have we learned from this crisis? What Mm -hmm. have we learned about ourselves? What have we learned about our commitment to ESG? And it's not just fossil fuels and climate. And this is maybe back to your observation about private equity, James, that if you look at any private equity GP and what they're saying to their portfolio companies Mm -hmm. is very, very consistent. Draw down your credit lines 100%, furlough your employees, uh, don't pay your rent, delay paying your uh, uh, wow. any creditor out there. And I'm saying to myself, hey, we've got this business roundtable. Uh, what happened to stakeholder? I thought we were moving away from the shareholder the stake to the stakeholder. But when things get tight, I think it underscores the short-term nature, the importance of the bottom line EBITDA full stop. And I think it's a bit of a, of a gut check in terms of our ability to to think long-term and think about the impact of some of these other uh, areas like climate. And if, if we're going to fix some of these things, it's going to re- require long-term and patient capital, mostly in the private equity impact space. And, and what I've seen so far in these six uh, weeks of lockdown, as a professional, as a human being, uh, I'm not terribly impressed. We still have a lot more work to do there. 
Wow. Yeah, I guess you've seen the joke uh, meme where it's uh, EBITDA C. It's the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and coronavirus. So I think it's going to be some restating later on too. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think also maybe back on the business side of your question, James. Yeah. I, and as I mentioned earlier, price discovery is very, very hard. I think people are sitting on their hands. I think the people licking their chops Back to my uh, my buddy Howard Marks. Not my buddy. I've had the chance to meet him a couple of times. A lot of respect for him. I think if you're in the distressed debt space and you've got a seller that needs liquidity at some price and you're the lender of last resort, uh, some of these distressed funds could probably do quite well. And, and I think that very last uh, conference I did, James, in Switzerland, I was on a macro mm -hmm. uh, panel with a couple of CIOs. And I, usually in that situation, I'm the moderator. This one, I was a participant. And, and I think this Fed had just cut the rates for the first time in the U.S. And somebody asked, what should we do? And uh, you got these big uh, answers from these other uh, macro uh, CIOs. And I said, uh, keep your distressed debt manager on speed dial. And I think with the passage of six weeks, I think it was probably good advice then and now. And I think that's where if there's a near-term opportunity around dislocation, I think that's probably the GP I want to be talking to. Yeah. Well, that actually was my, so my, one of my next questions is like, where are areas that you've you like now and you kind of liked before, but now you really like, uh, so obviously distressed debt, uh, from you, Bill and Mo, Mo, is there anything that your investment team has been kind of like maybe so, so on earlier. And now they're like, Hey, you know what? Uh, we should maybe take a look at getting a position of these and client portfolios or letting them know about it, putting it into their, into their plans. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, what's interesting in this environment is because it's so much is unknown and, we could make very compelling narratives uh, in in complete polar opposite directions, uh, given what are going to be the impacts of stimulus, who's going to pay the price of all this, what is mm -hmm. the outcome of, of what we're seeing in oil, could oil disappear? I mean, what would happen would be social unrest in countries that are entirely dependent on it. There are so many other products. I mean, we've, as a, notwithstanding what's happened in the last little while, like the world is actually consuming more oil and, you know, three months ago than it ever has in history. So, you know, there's hmm. a lot of stuff. Um, and then in terms of everything from fiat currencies to um, uh, to the changes in healthcare, to the changes in de-urbanization, deglobalization, like lots and lots of uh, potential implications. Um, uh, and and uh, again, like Bill said, you know, how people think about opportunities, how people think about businesses, um, I think we've learned subtraction, you know, and we've, we've been an economy that's been focused on addition. I think we've, uh, subtraction has been mm. valuable. Um, and in terms of the opportunity, so, so yeah, looking at, at gold for the first time or, um, commodity related, uh, strategies in a meaningful way, as opposed to just like some small little sliver of a portfolio, looking at, you know, deflationary assets and, and incidentally, you know, uh, out of the money, you know, kind of option strategies and insurance strategies, even things like cat bonds. Oh yeah. Respect. You know, there, there, there's lots of things. And and the other thing is like, just they look at simple things. Like, like, could you make sense of the mark of, of us markets today? Like, could you, could, could, could a rational person explain to me how the Dow, the NASDAQ, the S and P mm -hmm. is basically where we were in December. And, and by the way, where were we in December? In December, we were like at 20, 25% or something like that lift on 2019 on the year when earnings were flat. And that was on the heels of already having hit new highs 
you know, the longest and most robust correction in history. Like, and so with, you know, uh, incalculable at the, at the moment, numbers of unemployment with industries that will be shaking out in ways we don't even contemplate. Mm-hmm. Are, are, is it really like a, a 13% hit? Is that like really where we are? A 13% hit to something that, you know, that was arguably already inflated, argue, like on a multiple point of view from a pure, you know, PE point of view, you're talking in the 20s. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to wrap our heads around like what is really happening. And, and is like, is this going to be forever an artificially manufactured environment that's going to be sustained by stimulus? And government intervention, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Like I think I've. I we have more questions than answers. And I yeah. think more than anything else, we're just trying to isolate the various scenarios that we can, uh, even if they are contradictory and opposite scenarios that we can uh, be experiencing and figuring out ways to handicap the impact of those scenarios on on portfolios while matching assets to liabilities. And that's as direct as I could be, but it, I, I recognize that it's somewhat vague. <laughs> I love it. So I think he's spot on. And you mentioned this uh, EBIT DAC rolling mm-hmm. around on Twitter. The other thing I've seen, and maybe you've both seen it as well, is that our industry is the only industry where when things are hugely marked down, people run out of the store. And and I think there is a lot of value there, especially in the emerging markets. I saw something in Barron's uh, last weekend about uh, India, and that's been marked down hugely. And I think you've got to approach these through the lens of due oh. diligence, but with the eye of a contrarian, and not so much what's this going to be worth tomorrow and next week. If this is long-term holding, and uh, and you think it's undervalued uh, and severely undervalued, and your holding period is going to be more than one or two days, one or two quarters, if you do your homework, you're mostly most likely going to be rewarded on the upside. But I think that. Uh, there's, there's too much uh, emphasis placed on short-term and volatility. It is going to be U-shaped or V-shaped. It's going to be shaped like an EKG over the next couple of quarters. And and volatility is part of where yeah. we are. And if, you, if you're a long-term investor, that should be irrelevant for the most part to you. So I think doing your homework and, and some of the advice Mo gave just now is just absolutely spot on. Well, that's awesome. Thank you both. Uh, thanks, Mo. Thanks, Bill. And uh we're going to get you guys on another podcast uh, again sometime soon. And uh, until then, though, I hope you guys have a great, great rest of the spring and summer. And uh, like I say, we'll, we'll see where everybody is. Uh, if we can all get together uh, sometime in the next few months. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. James. Stay healthy.